Hey everyone, before we get started, a few times uh, Aaron and I used the term Aboriginal instead of Indigenous Australian, and then we caught ourselves about 15-20 minutes through recording. The reason we used the term was because the term is used in the film, but then again, the movie is from 1977. Rather than edit out every instance of the term, I thought it was better to leave it in as an illustrative point. Now, I'm going to make a bad pun about didgeridoos, which I also apologize about. Thank you. I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch... We love to watch says, didgeridoo, don't mind if I do. Hey Pete. Hey. Did you just rhyme do with do? I sure did. Welcome to rapping in the nineties. <laughs> uh, what what what's your what's your nineties uh, hip hop name? <laughs> little stinker. I don't think little was popular back in the nineties, Peter. Uh, so everyone's gonna murder you for being a time travel. Or... <laughs> We're not ready for that yet. No, no. We're still calling people little. <laughs> All of tell the- that to Lil Eminem and Lil Jay Z. Yeah, his his original uh, name was Lil Marshall. <laughs> Lil Marshall. You might not know this about him, but his name is Mar- Marshall Mathers. Oh, cool. Have you heard the thing? And I, I'm sure it's not true, but that Eminem stands for every mother. Is, basically, every mother is good except for mine. Uh, I haven't heard that, but I did just realize as I was talking out loud why he named himself Eminem because his uh, initials are M and M. Yeah, yeah. I literally um, just realized that as we were talking. Pierre. Do you think Adidas actually stands for all day I dream about soccer? Uh, that's what they do. They just dream about soccer. They just dream about soccer. They're not getting any Productivity is down. Not the Adidas you- plant. But I'm, I'm living the company's ethos. Get out of here. You're fired. <laughs> I need you to be dreaming about rubber molds. I'm not dreaming. Awake. <laughs> All night you can dream about rubber molds. That's Anitas. <laughs> All night I dream about rubber molds. <laughs> uh, near them. Uh, uh, anyway, you want to dream about rubber uh, rubber molds? Uh, you could go dream about it anywhere. You dream at the yeah. dildo factory. Uh, <laughs> you only know one thing that's made out of rubber, huh, Peter? Uh, sh- well, two shoes and uh, sex objects. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that they are. Uh, what's the opposite of a conductor for electricity? <laughs> uh, uh, what's the opposite of a conductor? Uh, a train? Yeah. Nope. Uh, even if <laughs> even if you use the other meaning, I don't think a train is the opposite of a conductor. Conductor's like, uh, stop the train, and the train's like, train. A tra- I'm training forward. <laughs> the opposite of a conductor would be someone who doesn't drive a train, I think. Like, it would just be a person. Isn't the conductor the dude who just stands and tells people to, to get all aboard and, and, you know, helps- No, the uh, conductor is, he's the train driver. Is that true? Yeah. He conducts is that true? Yeah, he conducts it all the way up and down the track. The person in charge of a train is a conductor. Collects fares and sells tickets. I feel like he's all he's in charge. No, he's. Do you train. want someone not in charge? Just a lackey driving the train. 
an engineer, an engine driver, a loco pilot, a motorman. Oh man, I'm gonna change my change my uh, my name my rap name to motorman. I don't know if the Koski still listen, but you think they called his their dad a motorman? Uh, <laughs> my father was a motorman. My father, that sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> A Bruce Spring Sting. Bruce <laughs> Spring Sting. That's when uh, him and uh, Sting accidentally end up in the thing from The Fly. And they become <laughs> Bruce Spring Sting. Uh, they have some really good early stuff and their later stuff is uh, not great. Yeah, um, he, uh, he, he can do... Uh, Tantric poverty porn. Yup. He can tell you about poor people for eight hours. Look at those cheap butts coming. for a long time. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's a it's a new month. It's a new year, but definitely the same old bullshit here on We Love to Watch. <laughs> uh, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme and we do movies around that theme. And this month is kind of a corollary to our summer of Lovecraft. This summer over July and August, we did... Movies that were direct adaptations of Lovecraft's work for the most part. We threw in a couple bonus episodes on, like, The Mist and uh, Bloodborne. Uh, but we were we had so much fun that month watching all those movies. And we just – our list as we were watching kept getting bigger and bigger. And so instead of continuing to release Summer of Lovecraft bonus episodes throughout the year when we have to record other things for all of our commitments – uh, we decided, you know what? We have a list of about four or five here. Why don't we save them? And in January, we kick off the year with, instead of Summer of Lovecraft, a Winter's Lovecraft. And again, instead of adaptations, this is going to be movies that are influenced by Lovecraft. Um... In different unless ways. We, un- unless we also can receive an opportunity to see Color Out of Space, in which case we will be sneaking that in this month. Or just uh, the second we see Color of Out of Space, we're going to record an episode, we're going to release it, whether it's January or not. We are recording this a little bit early because Peter has his, um, I assume his second honeymoon because he got married in July. It's January. I think he's going to be gone, So, which makes me think either A, he's going on two honeymoons because honeymoons, as far as I understand, where I come from, come right after a wedding. Or B, I got invited to a fake wedding that was a decoy so I didn't ruin the real wedding, which has taken place sometime in December. No, no, it wasn't a decoy. I feel like I feel like it was a decoy wedding. I don't think any of those people were related to you. Your mom didn't even know what Bloodborne was. Where would someone even get a blow up Peter? Oh, I think you were there. I think everyone else was actors. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you Truman showed me at your wedding. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I I was the one true man at the wedding. Um, everyone yeah, else was I, a, a robot. Yeah, but that you realize that proves my point. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming clean. <laughs> oh, okay. Those were some very lifelike robots. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, minus a few. Some were clearly robots. I just assume you had robot friends. Uh, anyway, so we're yeah, so we're doing a Winter's Lovecraft and uh. We're gonna we do, we are recording some of this early to accommodate for uh, Peter's real wedding and uh, subsequent immediate honeymoon. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna list all the episodes that are coming out up front here, 
And then uh, the order may vary a little bit, but we will probably have somewhat of an idea. But we're kicking it off today with The Last Wave, which is a Peter Weir movie that he followed up Picnic at, at Hanging Rock. Very much not um, not directly Lovecraft, but very much feels like uh, the cosmic horror uh, knowledge only makes things worse uh, part of Lovecraft. Uh, we're yeah, doing I, I like with Lighthouse, where it doesn't actually yeah. have Lovecraft mythology, but it is... It feels uh, Lovecraftian. Definitely cosmic horror, yeah. for sure. Uh, we're doing Martyrs, which uh, follows that same uh, ethos. It is very much a uh, knowing the unknowable cosmic horror type thing. Um, we're doing The Void, which is, again, very uh, cosmic horror, but a little more direct horror in that there's monsters. You're entering a dimension of, of unknowable beings uh, and done by people that mostly have done joke movies that we really love, like Manborg and The Editor and uh, Father's Day. And they uh, they actually, uh, Astron 6 just broke up recently. Uh, I haven't seen their kind of final web series that they did as their farewell. Um, but a few of them made, of that collective, made uh, a kind of a straight-laced uh, Lovecraftian horror adaptation in The Void. And we'll be talking more about that. And then we're doing a double feature of something that gets referred to as a Lovecraftian lot, which is some of Fulci's movies. And we're doing a double feature of The Beyond, which is a movie that I have not seen in about 10, 12 years. And I was not a fan of it the first time I saw it. Peter has been pushing to do this episode since we started the podcast because he doesn't believe that I actually dislike The Beyond, just that I need to watch it again, which may very well end up being true. Uh, and then one that we both love, which is City of the Living Dead. So that's what's in store this month. We've taken a couple breaks uh, in December and uh, November from horror, some pretty big swerves into the opposite of horror, but we're back, baby, uh, with some with some spooky uh, and, a, and a little bit more obscure titles, I feel like, uh, even if you've heard of them, um, I am excited to kind of get into stuff that may uh, not have been seen by as many people, including some that are probably actively avoided, like Martyrs, that I, we're going to try to sell you on, because that movie is not what you think it is, um, both in terms of level of grossness and uh, just being a uh, lumped into that kind of fringe torture porn movie. So, yeah, that's our month, but we're starting here. With the last wave, which is a, a Peter Weir movie, uh, uh, his basically second big feature that he did, uh, and his follow up to another movie that feels that same kind of cosmic horror-y thing, which is uh, a movie I love, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah, Picnic at Hanging Rock is something that I don't think people usually consider cosmic horror, but I had watched it for the first time recently in the context of uh, I'd just been reading a bunch of, of Lovecraft for the show. And uh, so I watched it in that context, and uh, it's uh, perspectives on the universe and its perspectives on, on the sort of uh, flow of nature. Um really lend itself well to cosmic horror. It's it's a film very much interested in sort of in the ineffable qualities of existence. So, uh, and, and the last wave is is uh, of a similar ilk. It's very much interested in uh, nature as this unknowable force and nature extending out beyond just our planet to you know the very the very forces that control all of existence, uh, living or non living existence. Um, 
And uh, I, I think Last Wave is a, is a very worthy follow-up to Picnic at Hanging Rock uh, in that uh, neither offers straight-ahead literal answers for the mysteries, and therein is is a lot of the um, the power of them is that it asks you to accept the fact of something that should be impossible, and yet uh, it should be impossible, and yet. Uh, it, it, it is possible. It, it, it happened. And there's no Western rationality will fail you at every turn trying to explain it. Well, and that the more you even if even if the ultimate destruction is imagined, right, even if the ultimate bad thing ends up being metaphorical, the fact that pursuing it also causes massive rifts in his life Um that will be unrepaired. And I think uh, I'm speaking, trying to speak somewhat broadly because we're going to get into more specifics, but that is something I like about while it's um, about, I think Lovecraft adaptations or something that people take from Lovecraft. Um, that concept of whether the ultimate like uh, end result is that the cosmic horror is real, which in Lovecraft adaptations directly, it very much is because Lovecraft stories had never, never really um, juggled the idea of that. Maybe the monsters were myth. The monsters were real and pursuing them and gaining more knowledge and learning about them drove you insane. Um, what I like about people that take parts of Lovecraft is that idea that following that line of thinking destroys you either way either uh either you be you are you are uncovering a truth about existence that you didn't know and the knowledge of the these cosmic entities or cosmic forces or things outside of your control the the truly like uncaring unknowableness of nature or the gods that control us um ruins your life or kills you or drives you insane or just becoming that obsessed with that concept can equally be as damaging and this movie actually the movie the modern movie that reminds me the most of is take shelter which um i never can i cannot imagine a world where jeff nichols has not seen this movie uh take shelter was one of my favorite movies of 2011 i so good jeff nichols is great i never thought of um Take Shelter as, a, as like a Lovecraftian movie until f- watching this and feeling like it has a lot of the same spine and then recognizing like even somewhat the ending is a little like they're going for different things, but the ending is remarkably similar, uh, almost to like a shot for shot image in, in a couple moments. <laughs> almost to an action, legally actionable level. <laughs> legally actionable, yeah. But but it's that same thing. It's like Take Shelter actually wrestles with it a little more, which probably influenced the way I interpret this, which is either he is really has really learned that destruction, unknowable, cosmically uh, impacting destruction is coming or he has destroyed his family unit by um by by feeling like he w- he was right by what he's uncovered through uh, visions. Uh, I think vision- one of the reason. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Go on. Go on. Go on. Well, I was just gonna I was gonna clarify uh, m- visions and take shelter and actually like learning about a history of uh, extinction forces in the last wave. 
Yeah, that's really well put. I think the reason that Take Shelter doesn't feel cosmic horror-y to a lot of people is because it's drawing on specific uh, Christian mythology of Noah and the Ark. Yeah. Um, even though it's not an actual Ark he's building, he's building like a, a bunker. Um, it's drawing on it, – it's clearly drawing on Christian mythology and people reference Christian mythology, whereas uh, Last Wave is specifically calling upon uh, Aborigine – uh, mythology and that's not to say that that's some sort of monolith that you know obviously Aborigin, Aboriginal culture is similar to you know Native American culture in the Americas like there's there's many facets many ethics systems many systems of lore and, and mythology that all kind of you know sometimes there's there's general themes together but just generally speaking the movie has has assigned um, the the backstory the backlog to this apocalyptic event as um uh, he is drawing off of Aboriginal myths, and it's t- heavily tied into Aboriginal culture in a way that like makes the movie just so fascinating, and I think kind of um, indispensable as a piece of Australian film history, a country that has its own deep, dark uh, colonial and imperialist uh, history with with subjugating um, races of color. So I think uh, before we get into the movie in specific, I actually kind of want to address some of those components, not because I want to give them uh, that conversation a little breathe, a room to breathe outside of outside of the discussion, because there's there's kind of there's two things that like hit very close to home. And that may be a weird thing to say, but yeah, there is uh, while it's a different history in. Australia than the United States about the way they, you know, that indigenous people were treated. Uh, it's not really like at the end of the day, um, <laughs> they had different forms. They of, had different uh, forms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it didn't take the exact same form, but it was that idea of uh, of of colonialism and white people coming in and basically deciding the structures that exist are uh, less than and uh, barbaric or savage or any of the other words used to describe and then as such not treating them that they had agency and rights and their culture meant anything um there's two points in this movie that uh one hits close to home just in a general uh feeling of like it's speaking to me about 2019 and the way we treat anyone that's um that has had a history of uh, violence perpetrated against them by the people in power in the country, which is the line where um, prosecutor in his final closing arguments, there's a point in this movie where there that one of the indigenous people is on trial for murder. And he says, reminder, you are not allowed to take into account any history of colonialism or oppression. The idea that like he committed a crime, we are not allowed to understand the history of racial relations in this country. It cannot be excused for a crime. It needs to be taken in a vacuum. Um, and I'm not saying uh, that and, – and that feels like so like now, right? Like this idea of not just about necessarily murder or crimes, but but the idea of the people that are against stuff like affirmative action or reparations or all these other things. It's like, no, no, no. You can't take into account any history. No history of the way minorities and people of color and indigenous people and women were treated and and gay people like can't take any of that account into anything that we decide from a legislative perspective or like a legal like nothing. You can't take into that account. No, this person did the thing. Nothing else matters. It's weird how if you uh, crop a story and that's like what history is, right? It's 
characters moving through a story and having their own independent, uh, you know, motivations and such. Um, it's weird how if you crop a story to a specific context that uh, helps your cause, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird how uh, it, it, you can you can make any any truth leak out of that, and that's kind of what the, the this movie is about is um, the Australian struggle with how to abide their racist past, how to move towards a a, a future with that shadow hanging over them. And there's so much of, and what's, what's really great and what's vibrant and new about this movie is that it's, it's not really about big, broad racism uh, of, you know, people being like, Oh, typical Aborigines. Like, it's not really about, about that. It's actually more about uh, the more subversive and more insidious parts of, of racism. And it speaks to how, uh, not just how Western people have treated uh, native cultures, but also like how Western people have treated uh, black people, um, black people that were brought to America as slaves, like and how we've, we've dealt yep. with that particular unfathomably evil history and how we, we find ways, uh, you know, sometimes unknowingly of, reinstating colonialism and imperialism on uh, these discussions and these conversations while exterior being like, well, they're people and they're deserving of respect. <laughs> you know, you know, I hate the Ku Klux Klan, but, you know, I just don't really believe in, you know, uh, affirmative action. Like that, yeah. that's sort of that, that you're attacking more of a modern understanding of what racism is. Um, and I think that this movie is, is very much interesting because it's taking a character in a family, a white family that are sort of um, they're sort of like neoliberal I guess is like a modern way to look at it. They they, yeah. they invite some of the the members of the Aboriginal community into their home and uh, have them over for dinner. But the moment that uh, they become entwined with their belief systems and they start realizing that like oh well maybe maybe these things are bigger than my Western rationality. Maybe these things are bigger than my brain. They reject it. They get scared. They run away. Yep. And this becomes a horror movie for them. Yeah, and uh, and and that's such a great way to put it because it is about like that kind of like neoliberal like justifications for racism that that falls somewhere between the spectrum of like well we don't want to take away their reservations or their land anymore like that you know but you know we we just have to accurately understand what's going on here and that way kind of minimize them as a as a people and as a group. And the part that, like, is so personally resonant – so, I grew up uh, a good portion of my life in Bismarck, North Dakota, and there are uh, a lot of active uh, tribes there, like the Sioux tribe, and a lot of reservations. And Bismarck Mandan every year has a the um, a huge gathering of, of indigenous uh, people in the Sioux tribe for the Bismarck Mandan powwow. And um, I, like, you know uh, – you know, every single uh, school class I had, I had people, uh, indigenous people in my classes, friends with them, you know, in uh, that some of them lived in the city. Some of them came there from one of the nearby reservations. Um, and I heard a lot of stuff that at the time I thought was just sober reality assessments that now I am very aware was fucking horribly racist shit, right? Like, I just – I was too young to understand. And also, the people that were helping me understand were the people that were saying stuff like this. And the reason I'm mentioning that is that there is a part of this movie where they're trying to determine if the Aborigines in this movie 
are tribal or not. That's the word they use in the movie. And they keep kind of saying, well, they can't actually believe this stuff because, look, they're living in our city. They're living around these modern conveniences. And that is the shit I heard all the time, especially anytime the powwow was coming up, that none of these people actually believed this stuff anymore. None of these people actually cared about uh, feeling like that their their culture and their land and their rights had been taken from them because – and this is like – I'm a, you know, content warning. I'm about to say some fucking horribly racist shit that I heard a lot as a kid was like – Look how much they love stuff like alcohol and cable TV. Like, they wouldn't have any of that stuff if if the white people had never come here. So, how much do they really care about this stuff? You think they trade that for cable TV? Like, that is the shit I heard all the time. And I didn't, as an eight-year-old, didn't recognize, like, how fucking... Uh, horrifically racist that is and like how wrong-headed that is and so seeing that in this movie as a way to like diminish their um culture and their agency like to a t was like flashing back you know 28 29 years and hearing like people that are complaining about it's not that we hate the powwow we just don't think they actually care about the powwow they're just doing this because they want more stuff from us yeah, and I want to park here really quickly because I'm just making a realization now because um, we're two white people talking about this. Um, I just make a realization now that I use the term Aborigine and Aboriginal a lot because they use it in the movie. I, I had a quick moment where I like needed to go check myself because I realized most of what I know about this cult, that, that culture, the indigenous culture of Australia, was filtered through movies and books that I read and watched um, – growing up and most of those were written by white people and uh most of them were written probably you know 15 to 20 to 30 to 40 years ago so i i'm just realizing now i was using the incorrect term and that's that's how insidious a lot of this stuff is is because like the preferred term in the culture is like you know indigenous indigenous australians Mm -hmm. and i'm realizing that like the The, that the 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 white perspective on this stuff, the the white racist like uh, colonialist perspective on this stuff, gets exported to other countries. <laughs> um, not yeah. necessarily the like the the actual truthful proper way and the way that like you know the the that people within the community might prefer. So yeah, I just wanted to step step on that really quickly. Even though we're like half an hour into this conversation, I wanted to step step in. Yeah, it's also just. So where does that word come from? Because is it from abhorrent? Like as we're talking about this, I'm like, so we'll say in, they do say it a lot in this movie. Yes, but you're 100 percent right. Like I didn't again. Shame on us. Like I was using it in the way they use it in the movie, but yeah, it never occurred to me to check. Like, oh, is that offensive in Australia? <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, wait a minute, am yeah. I using the right word here? Am I using the right? <laughs> and then I did like a quick Google search, and I was like, Amnesty International thinks no. Um, gonna run with that. They're a good source. I like those guys. Yeah, they've got a .org. Um, yeah. So apologies for uh, for making a mistake on this, but yes, I think our our intent our intent was pointing in the right direction, just not our specific language. But anyways, so I think you're making a really good point. Is that there's there's a lot of discussion in this movie about um, 
about colonialist attitudes and you're 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 right right on there's a discussion of someone who's supposed to be defending the indigenous uh people in uh that are being accused of the crime there's a lot of discussion even within their own defense saying well oh there's no tribes anymore in the cities they're they're you know they're yeah. australians just the same as you and me which is sounds like a progressive approach to this stuff it sounds like yeah you know, but it's actually saying it's infantilizing them, right? Like, what they, like, let's face it. They weren't anywhere close to this. They're better off ultimately. And I've, I've heard that somehow even, um, I've heard that about, again, indigenous people in the United States. I've heard that about, uh, people descended from slaves that ultimately they're better off that they left Africa. Like, you have to not understand a fucking thing to say something so dumb. And, it is amazing how prevalent that and not just prevalent from like the like you said, Peter, like the KKK alt right. Like it's prevalent from people who are like those neoliberals like and do a constant like, yeah, but like type stuff when it comes to like uh, racism and institutional racism and all those kind of things. Yeah, that was a really good whiny liberal voice. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah seen a, I've seen a lot of I've, I've seen a lot of Bill Maher, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, yeah, um, that whole discussion, and, and it's also something that I think one of the um, a corollary I've heard um, in the states a lot is people talk about Oreos, um, which is a very offensive term, saying they're black on the outside but white on the inside, and. Um, there's other terms, I think, in the UK, they use the term like Maltesers. And I don't mean to repeat these terms just offhand. I mean that in the, in the, in the specific context, which is saying like, um, there's these attitudes about people of color within, you know, majority white societies. They're, they're kind of stuck. They're, they're, they've been a shitty catch-22, right? If they align with the cultural values that are typically associated with their stereotype, they get screwed. And if they align with the cultural values of the dominant culture... Uh, they also get get shit on. And it's just like it shows you the insidious nature of, of you know, uh, imperialist racism uh, yeah. in the world. And this movie is, is all tied up in that. And but I think it, it ultimately, even though it's a movie that's 40 years old, I think it has all of the the pieces uh, moving in the right direction. And even though, you know, there's some there's some stuff in the movie that is uh, maybe a little bit drawing on horror from a place of you know like it's uh you know these maybe it's drawing in a place of like oh indigenous australian culture is very scary um it, when it doesn't have that 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 intent um you know it might be interpreted as uh, a re- reductionist of a culture or you know imperialist in its own way i think the movie is actually has a lot of really awesome anti-racist and uh, very open-minded, uh, globally thinking things to say about uh, how white cultures interact with the cultures that they have violently subjugated. Yeah, I mean, everything we've said as examples are not – the movie is not on the side of the characters that are saying or thinking these things. Like, very much not the case. So, yeah, that idea of like uh, – it's presenting a world that still exists now where – the, the neoliberal types just want everything to be like, yeah, no, we fought like we fought for equality. We made some mistakes in the past, but like it's all even now. Like there's no repercussions. And then like you want to talk repercussions. That is wow. 
Like, bringing up the past instead of taking responsibility for your own actions. Like, that is uh, that is the, the, the villains or the... Uh, if not if not sniveling villains then soft villains in the movie that is their attitudes and and very much still a prevalent attitude by a lot of people today uh, yeah. but they are but they are not looked at like that is not the movie's perspective that is people who sucks perspective and the movie knows they suck and um you know that is it is uh Good, you know. Whenever we we watch a lot of older movies, even ones that have their like, I think heart in the right place, but just fuck up the execution to the point that they may do more damage than good. Um, ultimately, and I think this is a movie with both its heart and its ideas in the right place that executes them well. And again, yeah. coming from two white dudes who don't live in the country that is depicting their <laughs> yeah. historical racism so that you can take that perspective with a with a pound of salt and i um but that that feels to me what is going on here yeah we have to we have you cannot you cannot discuss the movie without uh delving into this stuff and uh it would be a far less interesting and beautiful wonderful and less weird and and uh uh deeply like dramatically compelling movie if you just said like oh well this is just a movie about two cultures clashing there's one white cop and one black cop like this, is, this isn't like lethal weapon or something this is a movie and in, 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 it's um it, it cannot be it's inextricably linked with um inex, inextricably linked with uh with these these themes and what i love about that is because we talked a lot about uh lovecraft's racism uh back uh when we did our summer of lovecraft we did two months and we had to wrangle with it a lot not every episode but um on, on a few of them this one is very interesting because this is uh, a movie that I, I as far as i know has no linear connection to lovecraft um peter weir might have read some but <laughs> i don't i don't think it has any um linear connection to it but it, it feels uh as if it is uh, communicating in the same manner and it, it falls within the same genre as cosmic horror um and because of that i can't help but think about lovecraft's um just reductionist awful view of uh, indigenous cultures and how this movie gives so much respect and so much credence and uh, so uh, to uh to indigenous people and so much vile and uh, pity and hatred for for people that would attempt to um, further subjugate the, the indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. The last thing I, I think, and then we can move on to the the movie itself to build off of that, is that it actually feels like very much a Lovecraftian story in that it's like ancient knowledge being derived from indigenous people or non uh, quote unquote white educated. Uh, you know, middle toast uh, people. Um, but uh, instead of instead of framing it as um, like evil being carried out by these people, it is like the evil is being perpetrated by by the white people in the story, which something we talked a lot about of, of some of the other uh, adaptate the non direct adaptations like Bloodborne has a has a story where it kind of takes the framing of a Lovecraft story. Uh, in, in a little more specifics, but makes the the colonial powers pretty clearly the villains, which was always the opposite 
uh, approach that Lovecraft himself would take with those types of stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Where, where Lovecraft was like, thank God, so you're yeah. stopping them from spreading their evil knowledge. It just shows you that there's there's so much more interesting conversations to be um, gained by diving into these themes of racism and that running away from it and just being like, oh, they're just uh, scary monsters. Doesn't matter. I know yeah. I said they came from China. They're just scary monsters. Leave it alone. Um, yeah, and it was uh, it was a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, everyone was everyone was maliciously raised. No, everyone everyone agreed. Even other races were like, "Yep, we're the worst." So let's stop <laughs> talking about it uh, because everyone agreed back then, and we've learned some stuff. We read some stories. Uh, essentially, they're all the neoliberal protagonists of this movie, yeah. which is the last wave. Peter, do you want to talk more about the last wave? Let's talk about it. Surf's up, bro. Great. Hey, Aaron. Hey. We were just uh, talking uh, about, uh, you know, <laughs> imperialism and racism and stuff. You want to throw some alternate taglines at us? <laughs> yeah. Surf's up, dude. <laughs> Uh, one of two things that we could do. Either I'm copying your joke or whoever edited it can edit out your stealing of my pre- – no, that wasn't my pre-planned uh, alternate tagline. But I think it's appropriate because um, there's two ways you can handle a uh, wave of apocalyptic proportion. One, you can stand in the ocean, wait for it to hit you. Mm-hmm. Wait for it to wipe clean this slate of human existence. Or B, you can get ready to hang 10 because (laughs) surf is up, dude. Yeah, surf's up. Option one, most people. Option two, Patrick Swayze's character in Point Break specifically. (laughs) You catch that Narnar, bro? I'll tell you what. Yes, he caught the Narnar. He drowned in seconds. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what. You remake this movie and make one change, and that is Patrick Swayze's character in Point Break is the protagonist. I think you have a very different ending. And possibly an entirely different movie because there is zero bank robberies in this movie. But I think if you remade it with, once again, Patrick Swayze's character from Point Break switching places with the protagonist, I think at least one bank would be robbed. At least. At least Every, one. To be clear, everything else is the same. Except the protagonist is no longer the character in this movie. But instead, it is Patrick Swayze's character directly from Point Break. The Last Wave by Peter Weir. We open on a bunch of random, insane storms that keep to be seem to be hitting Australia, and they seem to be rather unpredictable. They'll sometimes hit when there's no storm clouds. Like, they're just acting very erratic, and, like, ever... There's, like, newspapers and weather reports as the movie goes on, and there's just... There's a lot of, um... But the school prologue is rules. The school prologue is great. These these rains seem to be more erratic and crazy, and everyone's talking about, oh, the rainy season is just so terrible this year. Like hail the size of basketballs that are shattering houses. And and let's keep this in mind. This is not um, Day After Tomorrow shit where it's disaster porn. This is, like, shot like a Peter Weir movie, so it's... uh... It's a little bit like City Slickers in that it takes place in the Old West. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, it's Australia is otherwise known as the Old West. The it's actually the original Southwest. It's the, it's the oldest West, but it's shot in a Peter Weir manner. So it's it's not really uh, you know it's it's not like disaster porn. You're seeing cars getting smashed and shit. It's just like you know these snippets of this like of these these horrific uh, weather weather patterns coming in. And also much much like other Peter Weir movies, there is a point where Harrison Ford shows up and goes, "Where's my?" Amish wife. <laughs> Where's my wife? Oh, oh, I see. Tending to the butter churn. <laughs> oh, great. What do you mean she was looking at a zipper? <laughs> I said no. I mean, I'm undercover and all. Uh, okay, so. She better uh, not be flying in that jet with Tom Cruise because she was also in Top Gun. I'm talking about <laughs> Kelly McGillis. <laughs> Uh, do you want me to maybe talk about Last Wave a little bit? I know, but look it up. She was in both movies. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is it doesn't matter the context as long as a fact is accurate. Look, Peter Weir made Witness. It's a great movie. The one change I would have is take Patrick Swayze's character from Point Break, put him in the Harrison Ford role. <laughs> Are you Patrick Swayze's agent? Because I have bad news for you. You need to check in with your client. Uh, I, well, I haven't been getting work for him lately. I'm trying to to really offer up some remake potential. Um, I've always yeah, seen I one feel- of his movies, though, so I keep I keep bringing that one up. <laughs> so the last wave uh, is about a uh, a lawyer named David Burton who usually doesn't handle uh, you know criminal cases, um, but he has been assigned to handle the case of uh, five. Uh, uh, Five indigenous uh, Australian men who are accused of murder of one of their own. Um, so we see the scene uh, unfolding and what actually happened, but with no real understanding of what is actually happening. We see them chasing him, chasing this one this one uh, indigenous tribesman, uh, and uh, he sort of collapses in the rain after being uh uh, pointed at with a specific, uh, a specific totem, a specific icon um, from indigenous culture by uh, their high shaman, um, or high priest um, Charlie. So uh, we st- he, he's talking to these guys, and no one wants to talk to him. No one wants to give him any information. And eventually, he breaks through uh, on one of them. Uh, Chris, he breaks through on one of them, Chris, and he sort of starts to form a, 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 a working relationship with Chris. Um, and Chris is basically talking to him about this the dream set, the, the, this dreamland, this dreams, this dream space, essentially, um, that uh, the the uh, indigenous culture that he's part of, the tribe that he's involved in, um, believes in. Um, and that they they comprehend time differently, and that there is a he, he eventually becomes privy to this sort of prophetic vision that um, this, he becomes privy to this prophetic vision through both dreams and Chris's revelation that the 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 earth is going to be swallowed up in a great wave and monsters are going to take over you know the surface of the earth for some time and it's sort of this death and rebirth cycle. Um, and our uh, Burton, our, our lawyer character, has a family. 
and he's he's having these awful nightmares as he works hard on this case and tries to get get more information. And it eventually his 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 interest in the case goes beyond simply uh, giving these men who he, he's not seen as a you know an, an out outwardly racist man. He, he invites them into his home. He deeply wants to get them a fair shake with the criminal justice system. And he, he thinks like there's no real evidence that they killed him. Um, the, the, the coroner essentially, uh, <laughs> all but says in one scene, um, yeah, I mean, there's no sign of trauma. He seems to have drowned in a few inches of water. Um, they don't. They don't really understand why he's dead. Um, but the the state is pushing forward to try and convict these five indigenous men, these five indigenous Australian men, and. Uh, Burton is is conflicted by these nightmares and these dreams and the weather. He keeps getting worse and he keeps seeing visions of, of the you know it's major cities being drowned in water and and, and uh, so you know, you know and Noah's Ark level. Uh, wave uh noah's ark level flood um and as the movie goes on he his uh there's a trial it's very quick uh and at the trial they are convicted of this crime of murder um and as this is going on his mental state is almost completely collapsed um and eventually one of them chris uh lends him he lends him knowledge that like there's a temple uh, sort of under the city and if you go there maybe you can change things or maybe you'll just understand things better if you go down there um and uh, Burton goes down there in a very Lovecraftian fashion, like beneath the sewers and all that. This this tribe has has erected a, um, a a shrine to their their myths, their stories, and in there he finds all these strange uh, totems. And if you uh, one of the the reasons that the original uh, indigenous uh, Australian man was killed was because he was trying to steal these totems from this this shrine. You start to realize. Um, Burton goes in, goes to steal them, and Charlie, the head priest, the head shaman of their the the tribe, uh, tries to stop him. Burton murders him because he says, "I need to stop this flood, basically," and he and he murders him to you know prevent him from stopping him. And as uh, Burton literally is, killing the messenger. Yeah, he's literally killing the messenger. Burton finds all these strange totems, and one of them looks exactly like his face. Yeah, which is this. That's that's one of my favorite. Like I gotta tell you, I don't care if it's a trope that's used often. Again, this is from 1973, so it was used less less often. Whatever, by what degree, I don't know that it's used now when this came out. But I love the go into some like fucking ancient thing and like, oh, there's your story. As part yeah. of it, like, Never Ending Story does that, too, which is a vastly different type of movie. But I love that he goes down to that cave and, like, oh, here's me. Here's my journey. That's fucking creepy as shit. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, so, it's so good. Um, and he grabs all these other objects and thinking – and he doesn't have any real understanding of what they do or how <laughs> no. they work. But he's like, I need to get them out of here and maybe I can use them to, you know, uh, avoid this catastrophe. Um, he drags them out. Club. He drags them out to the surface. Uh, he just drags them out to the surface, and because of the waves coming in, the water coming in, he loses all them in the water. And he comes up uh, out of a sewer grate out onto the uh, the ocean. 
down he's defeated he's down on his knees in front of the water and he sees a vision one last vision of a massive wave coming in and it's sort of a ambiguous ending whether or not he it's going to come in and it's it's real if this is one last prophetic vision that you know he's like the inevitability of this event is going to happen and i wasn't able to stop it or uh you know it's it's uh it's a it's a full-on hallucination because of his mental collapse you can't really tell uh, yeah, it, it feels like, and again, I agree that it is a little bit subjective. Uh, I think Take Shelter feels more ambiguous to me. I feel like this is like, the he is literally watching the wave coming in because his face is darkened with shadow. And uh, like, I think that if I remember correctly, there's like uh, other people on the beach behind him that are staring. And yes, that could be all part of his vision. But this this does feel, at least to me, a little more definitive on it, it's coming. Like well, the there is a shadow is. being cast on his head, right? And also us as horror yeah. freaks, horror freaks uh, might have a slight preference to stories about true being I, literal. I think I think the 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 reason why like take shelter truly does feel ambiguous to me because like he sees out and he looks back at his wife and his wife just looks at him and there's like no other effect from that so you're like is are they recognizing that they're the what they ran away from is on the horizon is like always going to be out there or are they like holy shit yep here comes that storm but this like the sky darkens it it feels uh, like it could be ambiguous because obviously he did have visions that didn't happen, but they always were set up a little bit different than he, this. He's also not. He's also not um, asleep. Yeah, exactly. So, like he was having dreams. Yeah, he, I don't even. I don't really read this or the ending of Take Shelter as um, like that debatable. But I do think that they are meant to be ambiguous endings. Like there's a there's a. They're taken from the perspective, a highly subjective perspective of a of a um, you know someone who has been we've been seen to have a mental collapse over the course of the movie and has done sort of uh, insane irrational things over the course of the movie. But I, I, I get. I, I feel like the end of the movie is, is supposed to be maybe it's because we were both raised on Twilight Zone and such. It's supposed to be this sort of like ironic like, hey, I know you thought this guy was probably nuts. Uh, the moment did arrive. The, it's it's here. yeah. And I, I guess I just – I feel – one of the things I, I love about this movie is that it feels apocalyptic oppressively so. Like, Take Shelter is – or other movies that, like, flirt with one man is realizing that doom is coming. It does feel, like, isolated to him. I think, you know, in this movie, this does a really good job of seeing, like – that kind of like society coming apart at the seams because of the weather. Like the opening scene, our protagonist is not involved in, and it is like basketball size hail from a cloudless sky, destroying this like school out in the country and like drawing blood from people as it hits them. Like it doesn't like, this 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 whole what is happening to the world in in a lot of movies the, they represent that like oh, well everything like it's it's from the point of view of the protagonist and he might not be all that uh, he might not be a reliable narrator because of all these other things we know about them. This feels like he like it is it is presented outside of him 
And we we get a lot of sense of like how fucking crazy things are getting. And the way that Peter Weir directs it too is so good because it really like there's it's so devoid of hope. It is so devoid of like any relief throughout it that like by the time the wave comes at the end, it just feels like inevitable. Like we are about to be wiped out. We're not seeing the signs. We don't know why that's the case. We don't know that this has happened before. And now, like, instead of enjoying uh, his his last days as he learns about it, Burton, like, impotently tries to prevent the uh, unpreventable. Yeah, yeah. It's extremely Lovecraft. This, like, white man going insane researching this, like, hidden knowledge um, and feeling some sense of command over that hidden knowledge, even though uh, <laughs> he has none. Uh, he Burton is not, by the end of the movie, an expert on the indigenous culture and their myths and their legends. He, he, he just has, like... <laughs> he does what uh he did a he's got a wikipedia understanding of it he like he's, he's definitely skimmed the wikipedia well and he, yeah and even at the end he's um he still thinks they're causing it like that taking these things will stop it as opposed to understanding it yes like yes. they 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 can't have knowledge that we don't have so they must be villains uh, working towards these ends, and also his idea is like, well, they're accepting this. This not they have this knowledge. I now have this knowledge. Well, he thinks he has the knowledge, but he has yeah. only just like a, a you know a, a shallow glimpse of it. I have this knowledge now. I don't want this to happen. I, I I need to. I can't accept this as an inevitability of the cycles of nature. I'm going to fight back against it. And I think that's yeah. really what uh, St. Joshi, uh, the Lovecraft scholar, um, responded to when he was making this movie. When he was he was uh, called this movie, you know, one of the best Lovecraft movies or the best Lovecraft movie um, he ever saw because it has no tentacle monsters. It has no, you know, I mean, it, it actually does have references to elder gods and old things in the sea and such, but um, we never get to see them. Um, uh, it, it, it's about the fact that there's a there's there's this hidden knowledge of the universe, and a man is uh, delving trying to delve into that hidden knowledge, and is going insane more and more insane as he learns more, and yet he's not he's not being empowered by that knowledge. Like it's not like he's paying the cost of his own sanity for the um, the reward of being a hero. He's paying the cost of his own insanity for the cost of losing his soul. <laughs> yeah, and he's I mean. He's again, it's I think you hit the nail on the head. The idea that now that I have this knowledge, a reasoned white person, I can figure out how to stop this. Like, sure, they whether they're villains or just incompetent, it's like they just don't know what they're doing. So instead of like spending the next couple days like realizing that the end is coming seeing the signs and understanding like with his family, he drives his family away and he, you know, goes on this quest to prevent the universe from completing its turn, so to speak, because he, he has to believe that because it didn't come from him or people that look like him or his quote unquote culture, that it must be wrong. 
Yeah. So not just the fact. So yeah, yes, a hundred percent. And not just the fact that um, these native cultures might have access to, or you know, anything that's not Western culture. Yeah. Um, this Western patriarchal view of the world. This this uh, you know pure rationale kind of view of the world. Um, the this movie is very much about um it's being abrasive to the idea of that our knowledge is knowledge like it's abrasive against the idea that western white patriarchal knowledge is the only real knowledge and uh that that is actually a very racist imperialist view of the universe and that um there's 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 all sorts of other approaches. Like there's there's this thing that I was reading recently, um, and it was because of a former guest in the show, Natalie, who was here in uh, October, uh, pointed me in the direction of this. But I uh, I wanted to delve into it a little bit more is about um, sort of uh, pagan cultures, witch cultures, and how it's not just it's not viewing it as just some sort of uh, you know primitive you know, uh, pre-Christian or parallel to Christian culture that sort of got pushed out by Christianity is uh, really reductive of it. And that actually there's like knowledge systems and systems of understanding that uh, were very women derived and and women focused that were pushed out um, by a a Christian patriarchal view of the universe. Uh, You know, Jesus Christ as this, as the central man and God as another central man and uh, men, uh, men control the family unit and uh, men controlling the the uh, the world as a king and men 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 um, it, it, that there's these knowledge systems that we uh, we as you know people who, you know, are trained to believe in a white Western understanding of the universe. Um, and even like, you know, this is this is where like the smug atheist shit comes in too. And that's why I try and push away from that, even though I am like an atheist. Um, the smug atheist shit comes in too, because like that is, that's why so many of the, um, the four channers and the eight channers and such are identify as atheists is they're, they're, it's not necessarily this like KKK Christian view of the universe. It's actually like this, this it's a different form of reinforcing the Western patriarchal ideal through this sort of like Western rationality and these Western systems of scientific understanding that like belies other forms of understanding. Yeah. I think that's a great call out to some of the stuff that uh, yeah, we talked about with Natalie and she wrote about as well that like, yeah, it is, it is that kind of, um, a really good example of rejection of other other ways of looking at the world, rejection of knowledge, uh, only leads to maybe not leads to your destruction, but leads to your personal destruction, like of your life and everything else, and that idea that only certain people can be right because this is the way knowledge works. It's also like why we have like all this bullshit. Like to get back to something I said earlier about. The way uh, they treat, like, people in this movie of, like, well, sure, like, they're, you know, indigenous people. They don't say indigenous people, as we talked about. But, but like, they, they're they doing good, thriving with all our technology and all the stuff that we brought to the table. Like, it is like that myth that um, you hear on, like, the Fox News and the Breitbarts and the conservative media it's going on today is, like, that essentially, like – uh, white people invented everything when like there is a giant amount of stuff including their favorite shit like gunpowder that they did not invent and it's just like that idea of um 
that the only thing they they count are things that uh, they can uh, ascribe to them while also not recognizing that even even that stuff was usually based on like oppression and slave labor and people stealing ideas from people that they didn't have rights to and like it's it's so it's just so like um polluted across the board and it's still like i think persists as like uh, you know that that white culture is the Christ, white Christian culture is the accurate culture, uh, and anything else is suspect. And that that's what this protagonist learns the hard way. Yeah, and, and I, it's it's totally true, and it ties into also this uh, this this idea that Lovecraft tapped into um, often from a condescending point of view, but also. Um, I think, uh, you know, you could read it in a way that um, is, is just a very interesting idea. And he delved into the idea of theosophy. And it was this idea that, you know, uh, gathering knowledge from all the different uh, founts of knowledge. So it wasn't just that, you know, I'm a Christian and anything that doesn't fall within that barrier is is, is untruth. Um, it was this idea that, like... Uh, everyone lovecraft deployed it the idea of theosophy in a very specific way and it was that um everyone has a a small piece of the puzzle um we don't have all the pieces of puzzle and we never will you can never hope to have it but you know uh all the world's religions all the world's understanding systems they all saw some glimpse of the other side some glimpse of this greater understanding and uh it wasn't enough no but it was enough to drive certain members of those groups insane. Um, and I like I like viewing this through that scope and as a, like a Lovecraftian work that like th- that the Western scientific approach to, to knowledge is is going to keep failing you. Uh, it might give you a slight peek in in, but uh, you need to look through other knowledge systems and other cultures and such to get a better sense of this this uh, this unknowable uh, unknowns. <laughs> Um, this unknown, yeah, I guess unknowable unknowns, these things that you can never figure out, but also, um, they are, they are unknown. So you, you inherently seek them out. Um, and I love, I love the idea that this is this sort of, this is tying this, this idea of, uh, the native peoples and indigenous, indigenous peoples, um, having this knowledge ties into that, that theme of theosophy that's through a lot of Lovecraft's work. Yeah. It's worth noticing that even the worst fucking racist colonialist thought that too they just thought that they should take it take credit and murder the people for the like right like even even those people understood like oh that's a good idea we're gonna murder them and steal that and that's ours now sorry that's like what like appropriation is and it used to be under the barrel of a gun or whatever um and it's still a curse but that idea of the things that that you didn't create and you didn't come up with we're gonna take the stuff that we like yeah, and the movie is is one of the great fears of the movie, and it's what makes this movie very scary. And I think it's a straight up uh, horror movie for me. Yeah, um, is it is about like a liberal leaning guy who's who's tolerant and is curious and leaning into it. <clears throat> By the end of the movie, he becomes who he hates, which yeah. is a colonialist, an imperialist who is uh, literally kills their high priest Charlie. Um, to steal and co-opt their culture and utilize it for 
uh, his own purposes. Uh, yep. Obviously, he thinks his own purposes are heroic in a global yeah. or universal sense. But but yeah, he, he's still he's still acting in this way where he's like, I don't care what you think about your things. I'm taking your things. And if you get in my way, you're going to die. Such a good call out because it is like him going, these things are bad unless I do it because I have good reasons for it. Like, and that is like, not just a fear about this sort of stuff, like something that everyone should be wrestling with like anything that you do like are you do you think or do that are you making an exception for yourself like are you giving yourself permission to do something that like you would never give someone else permission to do and if you're doing that you're probably doing something wrong that's something i reckon with all the time like where i i almost to a point that like it's one of the things this getting a little personal that I talk about a lot in therapy, which is like, am I like stopping myself from like doing things because I sit and think about all the different ways that people could take X or Y. And is that then the right thing to do? And how would this person react? Like I do that constantly because of stuff like that. Like I, I'm sure I still do it because where I feel, but, but even so, like I am hyper aware of that idea of, uh, I, that form of hypocrisy where you're like, um, oh, yeah, no, I'm against all this, but I'm doing it for good reasons. Yeah, it's it's a it's a classical it's a classical like uh, road to hell is paved with good intentions thing. Because, yeah, exactly. Uh, you're making ex- you're making uh, excuses for what is ultimately the same end byproduct. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess it could be narrowed down to uh, an old adage, which is the end does not justify the means. And that's, yeah, probably the case here. Anyway, uh, but I do want to talk more about the actual, you mentioned the horror aspects. So this movie is also very horrific to me um, because there is a um, there is something that has changed in the last five or six years. We'll call it homeownership, where uh, weather scares the shit out of me in a way it never used to when I just had an apartment that it literally didn't matter what happened. Um, <laughs> so, like – and this movie does, like, terrible weather so well uh, because anytime, like – if it's, like, rainy and thunderstormy or blizzard for a few days or any of those sort of, like, wonderful Midwest parts of weather – um, you do start feeling like, is this the end of the world? Because it just feels so oppressive and unstoppable and miserable and stuff like that. And this movie does such a good job between like the frog rain and uh, the black rain or like water just seeping into your house, which is like the worst thing you can imagine as a homeowner or like seeping out of the car stereo into your car. Like there's just so much in this movie that like gets under my skin in the way that like people describe like eye torture in movies like seeing water rain down a flight of stairs is terrifying to me yeah yeah i how do you uh, get the water out peter how do you get the water out uh thousands of dollars uh guys with wet vacs uh tearing out every piece of carpet or linoleum you have that it got yeah. under because otherwise it's just gonna bubble and rot um yeah no i know cool. I, 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 have you I, i'm sure you had situations like i had one just when i when we first moved into our not this house but the house before this where like we were literally having a party that day and we walked into our basement and there was water everywhere because there was roots blocking our main drain out of the house so anytime people were putting up, it was just bubbling out. Cool. Uh, and yeah, and you you didn't notice it. And it's just like, 
Yeah, it was wet vac. It was like, what is damage? This is going in the furnace. Is that broken now? Like, uh, homeownership has taught me what a uh, monstrous, monstrous thing water is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it it uh it is in its own way uh makes you more aware of. I I don't own a home, but it makes you more aware of. Um, but I did grow up in the Midwest, so it, it makes you more aware of the fact that houses are a fight against nature. Yeah. Um, which I think most people don't get a chance to really feel unless they're like camping and they're like erecting a tent and they're like, well, this ha- I have to have the rain fly here. Otherwise, like I'm going to wake up and be completely soaked. Uh, that's it on a tiny level. Whereas like homeownership is like, there might just be like a weird leak in the foundation and you're not going to notice it at first. There's no alarm that's going to go off. And then eventually one day you're like, oh shit, uh, I have mold, black mold and rot throughout my entire basement. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, or it's the other thing is like, as, uh, as if the power goes out for too long, uh, are my pipes going to explode? Um, we had a terror this, like we, our new house doesn't have a, um, outside, uh, outside, uh, faucet shut off. Right. Which for those of you guys that don't know, if your basement isn't well insulated, and you're out like your pipes will freeze into the house and then explode. So normally, if you have a basement in the Midwest, there is um, pla- places in the piping where you can shut off the water going to the outside uh, hose spigots so that that doesn't happen. And we literally called a plumber because we couldn't find one. And he's just like, yeah, I guess your house doesn't have one probably because the basement's finished. And then we just spent the whole winter and it was fucking freezing here this winter, like a minus 40 air temperature day, paranoid that our pipes were going to burst because we had no way to stop the water that touches the outside from like being right up to the nozzle. That's fun. This is fun. And I think the <laughs> I think the real like Lovecraftian nature of this getting because this isn't just ranting about uh, this isn't just complaining about homeownership. The real Lovecraftian nature about this is that it's this quiet, insidious thing. This isn't the devil like waking you up at 2 a.m. being like, hey, guess what, man? You're about to spend fifteen thousand dollars. It's um, it's it's this quiet, seeping sort of like uncaring force that just, you know, get, gets gets in and does its its work. And it doesn't really care about your plans. Like yeah. there's a there's a cause. I would also forward. I would also say knowledge doesn't actually makes things worse because knowing that you're supposed to shut off your pipes, which I didn't know before I owned my first house uh, from to the outside didn't help me in this situation because there was nothing I could do about it. And I just worried all winter. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's, but it is like it ties into it ties into cosmic horror because like this when the fight against nature when the fight against nature isn't this like noble like uh, all right I need to make sure that I have enough wood and I need to make sure that I get collect enough deer meat like what it isn't this like noble like uh, you know fucking uh, mythologizing that we do as a comfort. Um, when we like go camping or, you know, we talk about like bear grills kind of figures, um, or, you know, the wild men of the wild west, like those, that kind of, uh, mythologizing that we do, uh, as sort of as a comfort is because the, the, the creeping dread of the universe coming in on us is, um, is, is, uh, it's too much and it's, it's, it's this uncaring force that acts on us. So the idea in this movie is stepping that up even more that we had some understanding of, uh, 
we had some understanding of of uh, nature patterns and such, and this is this is going to be very interesting as global warming continues to get worse. As uh, one of the aspects of global warming is uh, unpredictable weather patterns, so nature yeah. is going to seem even more uh, random and uncaring as time goes on, as the seasons begin to get more blendy. Um, and we get more, I don't even know, late summer or late, uh, you know, fall uh, heat waves. And then uh, early, you know, this, this sort of flippy flopping where it gets really warm one day and then we get snow two weeks later. Like that stuff's just going to keep happening. Yeah. And I and and I feel that more than I ever have in my life. And again, like even when I rented, it was all apartments. So like you just don't there are these giant brick buildings and you just feel like. Uh, you know, you're you're safe from the weather in a in a weird way, and so like, yeah, I think this movie is only th- this movie felt more even those little moments of like just like how do we fix this? This is what's happening. Just felt more um more real to me, but also yeah, it's it is something of like you know I don't know if there's some sort of like cosmic cleaning going on here, but uh. It does feel like weather – doesn't feel like it. Like, weather is becoming more and more of a threat. Like, you know, I sat up at 3 in the morning and watched that uh, – the Japanese uh, tsunami, like, live footage of it just sweeping things away. Um, there's going to be more of that. There's going to be all the things that come from, like, loss of land due to rising sea levels. And, you know, we're not we're – not, Obviously, hopefully, you you know about all this stuff that's l- literally coming. We we cannot stop it because we have decided we don't want to. Um, but yeah, it makes these kind of things feel like not just apocalyptic in the way they're presented in the movie, which again, extremely effective. Every part of the weather in here just feels like an omen of doom. But I would I would I would venture to say that it may feel more resonant to a 2019 crowd than it even did to a 1973 crowd from just the reality of that coming more and more yeah that's that's a really good uh it's a really good view on that um but yeah so he has a really good view on that because i i think that like our attitudes towards nature um are very much defined by mythologizing that we put on as a sense of comfort um we 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 romanticize it because it makes us feel more in control of a universe that ultimately doesn't care about us. Um, yeah, but yeah, so there's a, there's a performance I want to call out in this movie. Um, and it's, uh, David, uh, Gulpalil. Um, I think he is just credited as Gulpalil in the, in the film itself, but he went on to later be credited as David Gulpalil in different movies. Uh, he's not an actor anywhere. Um, he, but he's in this. He's in uh, Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. He's in. Uh, he's been featured in a lot of like key Australian films as an actor. And Chris is so good in this. Um, uh, Chris as a character is so good, and Galpalil is is so good uh, in the role as well. And it, he's he's he perfectly performs this sort of like man stuck between two worlds. Um, and his story is as much. I'd say the main character is much important to the main character's journey as the main character's actual journey. Um, it's it, they're they're linked together in a way you can't break. Um, because by the end of the movie, uh, Gulpalil or Chris, I should say, Gul- Chris has uh, broken 
Uh, he's, he's just, he's seen enough of the white world and the way they, they refuse to understand, uh, things that are right in front of them. And they try and assign vicious, awful order, um, to things that they don't understand. Um, and he basically says at the end of the movie, like, I'm going back to my people. I'm not going to play this game anymore with, with you. Uh, this, this, I'm not going to sit here and be your, your, your guide to the, to the, to, to my tribe anymore. I, I need to go join my people and, and accept, um, the, the universe for what it is, as opposed to, you know, futilely trying to, uh, subvert, like, like you said, change the, change the, um, the, the, the direction of the, of the spinning of the earth or, you know, move the sun. Um, it's just not, it's just not something that he, he like ever considered. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's really good in this uh, and really good in Walkabout. We should do Walkabout. I don't know under what circumstances, but Walkabout is very good. He's a really good he's a really good actor. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's his, his story is so much part of this movie. I didn't want to skip past this as we sort yeah. of, I think as we approach the end of this episode. Yeah, uh, it is. Um, I mean, the, the thing about this movie is that like I, I feel like most of the little moments I would call out uh, are like the the weather based horror effects, either in vision or dreams. There's a great scene of like uh, um, uh, imagining everyone being drowned in the streets, um, which starts with like water pouring out of a car radio that stops working. And then um, literally just kind of everyone face down in water that has uh, consumed the streets. And it is like all those moments are so effective. Um, and I, it's so funny. Like this, it, the movie's called The Last Wave. So I remember seeing the cover of this movie, um, on uh on Hulu back when they had all the Criterion movies, and the the image of the cover, like if you're scrolling past it quickly, looks like someone firing a gun in like a dark warehouse, and so I assumed this was a crime movie. Until Peter mentioned that um, uh, that this is be- is considered a Lovecraftian horror movie, and I'm like, nah, I don't think that's right, Peter. You must be <laughs> you must be switching it up with something else. And then I started looking, uh, poked around him. I'm like, oh. Uh, and Bridget Taylor, uh, f- uh, guest on this show, mentioned like, oh, yeah, that's like an Australian Lovecraft movie. And I'm like, oh, I really <laughs> – so I really had uh, – um, I really had it uh, messed up in my head because I uh, I had had it on my list of movies to watch because I love Peter Weir and the, the few movies of his that I haven't seen have been on like watch lists and Netflix DVD queues forever, which I think it's like – of his major movies I haven't seen, it's this – uh, Gallipoli, Gallipoli, and uh, the Year of Living Dangerously. Uh, two Mel Gibson ones. Um, haven't really got around to that one recently. <laughs> um, and then this, just because this is a little harder to 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 see because it was only on Criterion DVD, and then I uh, I haven't uh, been able to subscribe to any of the new streaming things with Criterion, and because they aren't on the right apps, and I don't know if this is even on there, but. Uh, yeah, like I, I do want to at least spend a couple minutes talking about Peter Weir because I don't know when the next time we're going to get a chance to to talk about him. He's one of those people that has a really hard to describe directorial style in that um, I guess here's the way I would kind of put it. And this is he has a way of telling 
stories that on paper seem really dumb and making them make these amazing movies. Like, uh, I don't know how much you've seen, Peter, but like the Mosquito Coast. Oh, Harrison Ford goes crazy in the Amazon, takes his family. Is like this amazing movie. Fearless. Oh, guy survives an airplane and then learns, uh, has a new meaning on life. Like, sounds like the sappiest, lifetimiest movie ever. And it's this amazing movie about, like, redemption and death and all these kind of other things that go with it. Like, um, uh, this movie, I think, could sound dumb on paper. Stuff like uh, The Truman Show, which now seems like the most prophetic movie of the last oh, yeah. uh, 20 years. Like, on paper in 97, like, guy lives in a bubble at his watch. But even in 1997, it felt like this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Like, this, this – I remember walking out of The Truman Show and saying to a friend, like, well, you know if, like, if that was a real thing – I feel like everything about that it was depicted was realistic. Audience reaction, the way the world reacted to it. Like, he somehow, like, got it right. And it's something I didn't know that existed or didn't really exist at the time. And I still feel that way now watching The Truman Show. But, like, I would love to do more Peter Weir movies on this podcast just because he just is such such a good storyteller that even these movies that seem like – a little bit eye-rolly on paper, he is able to come up with these compelling uh, uh, personal dramas that really – uh, that really like are, are are mainly focused on these characters who are experiencing these like these, – these major things and how they react to them in a way that just draws you in like a fucking laser beam. And speaking of, of drawing you in, like I think his approach can be compared to like a Terrence Malick or a Lynn Ramsey where he doesn't approach things from this hyper-literal level uh, very often, especially in this movie and uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock. He doesn't necessarily approach yeah. – uh, I mean obviously he made like a rom-com in the – late 90s and such like oh i haven't seen green I, I guess i haven't seen green card either <laughs> yeah yeah but he but like uh these movies of this era in gallipoli have a sort of uh, a dreamy quality that he, he sort of reminds me of lynn ramsey and, and uh, terrence malick where they're he's sort of approaching he's approaching every moment from a thematic perspective and not necessarily from a literalist perspective and he's going for capturing a, a mood or an emotion and he he doesn't matter he doesn't care if he like slows things down almost to a point of, of complete stasis um, there's a lot of really yeah. creepy awesome scenes of didgeridoos being played while uh, the action is all in slow motion and mm-hmm. um He'll slow down on, on this like oblique, strange shot for you know, seeming it would feels like just moments and moments stacked on top of one another, and it's not boring. It's just he's making you sort of like live in that moment. And the way you say he kind of pulls you in is is just it's so crucial. Um, it's just it's so yeah. crucial because he uh he has such an eye for what could be a moment that we can just sit and stew in. Um. And and it, it gives something such a it gives everything a transcendent quality, um, high above what you know the the, the act the literal action of the moment might be stupid, like you say, uh, or it might be silly, uh, or it might might or not could feel be realistic. Yeah. Yes, but he makes it believable um, yep. because of the the approach that he takes and the fact that he's always approaching it from this sort of like thematic and human level, um, as opposed to. Um, 
He's approaching more world cin- breathing. Yeah. Yes. And he's approaching it from a cinematic perspective. He's yeah. saying, this is a camera. This is, I'm not shooting a stage play. Um, I, this is a camera. I'm going to use the camera to the fullest extent that I can perform it, which is like what Terrence Malick does. Where like, uh, he can take bad, Terrence Malick can shoot bad performances and make them into good performances. Yeah. Uh, have you, out of curiosity, have you seen Fearless or The Mosquito Coast? No, I have not. I think you should definitely watch. Those are two really, I mean, he's made better movies than both of those, but um, uh, because he's made some of the best movies of all time, and I wouldn't call either of those that, uh, the two of the best movies of all time, but they, they are the two Peter Weir movies that I feel like no one talks about uh, and are just so fucking fantastic. So... Uh, if you're listening too, I would check out both Fearless, the one where Jeff Bridges is the only person that survives a plane crash, and The Mosquito Coast about Harrison Ford going crazy. Uh, anyway, awesome. They are very good. Uh, Peter, what are your uh, what are your final thoughts on this one? Um, I, I really want to. I'm glad that we're kicking off Lovecraft Month with this because I think there's kind of two two ways to look at this. Um, the I think I think the simplest way, uh, and this is not a way I would adhere to at all, and we haven't adhered to in this episode, as you say, like Lovecraftian is something that's a little bit more literal. You're saying like uh, you know tentacle monsters and old gods, and more you're hinting at like a lore. Um, that could be Lovecraftian. Um, and then, you know, anything that's, that's more talking about the, um, the philosophical aspect of it, you're more talking about the cosmic horror and works can fall into either or, or both. This movie is firmly, if you're looking at it from that perspective, this movie is firmly in the cosmic horror as opposed to the, the Lovecraftian. So it's still hitting on the, his themes in a way that few works ever do. And we love Stuart Gordon, but like his works are very rarely are about like this mystery of the greater cosmos, right? Um, different works capture different aspects of what makes Lovecraft Lovecraft. And I'm glad we're kicking this off with a more like intellectual or I hate the word cerebral, but like a more, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a more philosophical approach to his work, uh, adapting his work, even though it's not a literal adaptation. And I don't even know if Peter Weir ever read Lovecraft, but it, it, it acts as that. Um, and that also sort of uh, yeah. it also helps kick off this month, because like I said, I don't I don't fucking know if Peter Weir ever read any Lovecraft. But Death of the Artist, man, this is it. I don't care if you meant to design. It's sort of like a design question. Like, I don't care if you meant to design a horse. You gave me a zebra and I'm going to use it as a zebra. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I think. I think in general, like, it's okay to say, like, Hitchcockian with someone who's never seen a Hitchcock movie that made it. Like, it's fine. Like, he he didn't he didn't invent suspense. He just, like, <laughs> codified the way that it's, like, shown in screen to a way that even if you're a director who is making suspense movies and has not seen a Hitchcock movie, which I, I'm sure there's some – even if there's there's little, like, you're pulling from all the people that were influenced by that. So, I think regardless of whether Peter Weir saw Lovecraft or kind of where he's taking some of these ideas of, at the end of the day, like, in the same way there's a specific, like, Stephen King type of horror, like, there this, this matches a lot of things we love about Lovecraft. Um, and, uh, and it does it really well. Like, it just, it just feels like hopelessly apocalyptic like i said i i think i said oppressively um it it just feels like it if if one of the big lovecraftian components is 
feeling like you are trapped in a world that doesn't care about you and you don't ha- you can't have an effect on and that world is going to cause you harm like the way that you're feeling in the shoes of this protagonist near like the the last half hour is so goddamn that like when he goes back to his house it just feels like he might as well just end it there because everything just feels so hopeless and he's just gone too far. And there's still like a half hour left of hopelessness for him to literally wade through. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a I, I'm so glad um, that I learned this wasn't a uh, hard nosed Australian crime thriller. And I think honestly, Peter, the biggest mark of quality for this movie is we didn't once try to do terrible Australian accents because it was too too exciting for us to want to talk about it. Uh, unlike some other Australian movies we've done, <laughs> Turkey Shoot. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this was a great way to kick off the month. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that we're – so next week we're going into another movie. That also, I would say, is uh, whether consciously, subconsciously, or not at all inspired by Lovecraft feels uh, very Lovecraftian in kind of the same way, in that cosmic horror way. And I feel like um, it, this it's a perfect next episode to do because it really hits a lot of those same points in a different way, in a different type of movie. And that is uh, Martyrs, which is – Lumped a lot into the extreme gore, torture porn, French, uh, uh, ex- extreme brutality movies. And I, I think it – I don't want to say like there's not uh, tough to watch gory scenes. But I feel like its its reputation is more on a movie that shows someone being tortured for 20 minutes, which it does not. Uh, it definitely shows someone in a situation, but it's not like brutally showing torture for 20 minutes and not as like a um, Lovecraftian cosmic horror type thing. And part of that is probably because that gets into some spoiler territory. But unfortunately, it's been 11 years and we need to do a month that has a theme. So uh, hopefully that gets anyone who hasn't watched it and feels like some level of violence and brutal violence is acceptable. If not, totally understand. It's not for everyone to be able to watch. But this isn't hostile. Like, this is this is much less on the extreme side. Peter, you saw it recently. Do you... Yes. Do you feel no, the no. same way? I'm with you. I'm with you. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation because I don't think anyone has included this on like a Lovecraftian list before. And I, uh, at first, I was I was uh, doubtful, uh, but now I'm uh, now I'm I'm more intrigued. I think that the movie. I think that we're going to have a lot of interesting stuff to talk about that none of the other movies we've talked about are really going to take us to to there. Yeah, and this was a fun one too because I had to really push. I couldn't even convince Peter that this was a Lovecraftian movie uh you had to read it somewhere else and then watched it uh after years of me saying like trust me this is not what you think it is so hopefully we can have that conversation with everyone here and then you can go read it in a different blog after you listen to our episode and watch uh i think you just convinced me to watch it uh eventually because it was available to rent I didn't oh yeah that's right yeah it was just it was just not available for anybody right. to watch the movie is one of those movies that its reputation has actually kept it from being widely available for people 
That's right. I forgot. Like for a while, I was pissed because the Blu-ray was three hundred bucks and I didn't buy it. So yeah, never mind. My whole myth making up here refusing to watch the movie is incorrect, but I think it works well for thematically. So we'll get, we'll continue doing it. But yeah, it's it's uh it was gonna, it's gonna be it's, fun. It's, it's gonna be a fun episode. But uh yeah, so we have a lot of fun stuff to do the rest of the month. And uh yeah, I yeah, and hap- say, happy twenty twenty. Yeah, happy twenty twenty. Hope good you guys had a great Christmas. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, It wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, (laughs) If you can't, (laughs) uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches Peter and Aaron. <laughs>